0: You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, last week, George opened our series uh, talking about how Jesus is the word, the logos, the meaning behind all things. And today we'll stop and consider um, what we've been singing about, this light, the life. Jesus is the light and the life. What does that mean? What does that mean to us today? Hear the word of the Lord from the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life. And the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not overcome it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, like many people, I love the idea of Christmas. I mean, how beautiful is this? Twinkling lights. It's the best. Hot drinks by warm fire, lots of friends, gift-giving, nostalgic, eclectic, even tacky decorations fill our homes. Somehow clutter is allowed this time of year, unlike any other. And so is the uh, wearing of really ugly sweaters. You know who you are. I say I like the idea of Christmas... Because more often than not, it seems like the winter months have smuggled away not only the sunlight, but the hours of the day. And during the holiday season, we scramble to get everything done. Decorate, shop, bake, wrap gifts, get to the post office, get the Christmas card, address the Christmas card, sign the Christmas card. (laughs) I ran out of stamps. You know. And from there, it all seems to spiral into a series of relational, financial, and emotional cluster bombs. Should we go to their house or have them here? I never know what to get her. She always goes so over the top. Why do we always have to fight about money? Why don't we ever have enough money? Why is he drinking so much? Ah, Look at their Christmas card. They look so put together. Do you think they use a tutor? (laughs) Why do all my friends' marriages look so much happier than mine? Why do I eat so much? What the church calendar tells us is the season for hope and expectation has become a season of frenzy and disappointment. Christmas hope has become as artificial as the lights that we string up in a desperate attempt to regain some of the light that the shortened winter days have taken from us. And sadly, our lives can feel most empty during the very season when we celebrate God's desire to fill them. What came into existence was life, and the life was the light to live by, John says. Life light blazed out of the darkness, and the darkness couldn't wrap its hands around it. John's gospel story for this season is really different, and I hope it sort of jolts us out of fuzzy, warm images of scenes on Christmas cards to a more real sense of what Advent and Christmas are really about. God longs to be with us. God is with us. Are we making room? Do we have space? Are we paying attention? Are we letting God's life and light bring us the life that we long for? Or do we settle for the artificial stuff? Let's pray. God, open our hearts. Help us to turn off all the other voices, the grocery list, the laundry list, and to be very present to you this moment. Help us to meet you here, that meeting you, we would be changed. And by being changed by you, we would change our world, that it would know your light and life. Amen. Well, it's been said that the Gospel of John is a pool in which a child can wade and an elephant can swim. And one of my seminary professors added so profoundly, and one in which scholars and pastors can drown. (laughs) The ideas are so simple. It's sort of the sea spot run of the Greek. It's where a lot of, um, it's where they teach you Greek because it's so simple. And yet the ideas are so complex and rich. So it's no surprise that John's Gospel gives us a really different perspective on the Incarnation. Remember, John was a teenager when Jesus called him to follow him. And we know that he lived well into his 90s. So John had decades to preach and teach and reflect before he penned this, the last of the Gospels. And as a result, it's rich with the complex thinking that lifelong ministry and, um, afforded him. It's believed, well, actually it's not even believed. If you remember, Jesus at the cross says to John, this is my mother, behold your mother. And we we believe that really Mary went to live with John after Jesus' death. They lived in Ephesus. And so Mary lived out her days in John's family. Surely John and Mary talked about the miraculous story behind Jesus' birth. You'd think that he would have told that story here. But he doesn't. He tells a really different story. No manger, no angels, no wise men, no cute little sheep, no cattle lowing, no travel weary couple looking for a place to deliver a baby. Instead we get these words, word, light, life. They're rich and they're simple. And they're pregnant with potential and they're looking for a place to settle deep within us. But they're not without their challenges and their nuances. So take the word light for instance we tend to think of light as the opposite of darkness. And we conclude that all light is good and all dark is bad and that they constantly battle with one another for space. But I'm actually beginning to think a little differently. I've been reading a book by Barbara Brown Taylor called Learning to Walk in the Dark. And in it, Taylor challenges long-held notions of how we interact with the many polarities that scriptures and our tradition tend to offer us. Life and death, good and evil, light, and darkness. And she writes this. On a theological level, this language creates all sorts of problems. It divides every day neatly into two, pitting the light part against the dark part. It tucks the sinister stuff into the dark part, identifying God with the sunny part and leaving you to deal with the rest on your own. It implies things about dark-skinned people and sight-impaired people That simply are not true. Worst of all, it offers people of faith a giant closet in which they can store everything that threatens or frightens them without having to think too much about those things. Taylor goes on to talk about the goodness of what we commonly refer to as the dark places in our lives. That God uses the darkness of pain and doubt and even our own failure to teach us more about a life of grace. While light gives us a sense of security and peace, darkness has a role in the life of faith. For what's courage and faith when all things are clear and obvious? And who hasn't encountered a dark night of the soul and wrestled with God and faced fears and doubt and found God in the midst of it? Most of us would point to the dimly lit seasons in our lives as those which have taught us how to hope and trust in the midst of deep doubt, fear, pain, and despair. She rightly reminds us that at our core, it's just part of the human condition to be afraid of being afraid. And because we are, we tend to take all of our frightening fears and hide them. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, who donned fig leaves and hid as if God couldn't see them. And Genesis goes on and tells us that despite their attempts to hide themselves, which were inadequate, God meets them in that fallen state and graciously clothes them with animal skins, a foreshadowing of the reality that mere human attempts would never be adequate to cover the consequences of human fear and that blood would have to be shed in order to do so. I think we're much more sophisticated than fig leaves, we hide behind uniforms and weapons, degrees, titles, brand names, or privileged upbringings. But maybe the psalmist is on to something when he declares, even the darkness is not dark to you, the night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. We just can't hide our nakedness, our naked fear from God. God already knows. I was talking to a friend recently, and we laughed how every single one of us kind of engages the Christmas season just a little off kilter. We indulge too much, we worry too much, we do too much, we spend too much, and we get way too sentimental and nostalgic. And yet what's behind it all is what he referred to as the holy instinct, a revelation of human hunger, a hunger to be known and loved, a longing for meaning, just as George talked about last week. We long to feel deeply and to live lives that make a difference and to create a world of joy and peace. It's part of what it means to be made in the image of light and life, so real to us in the person of Jesus. But we're broken people, and our hunger gets distorted, and it gets damaged. Because we live in a fallen world where hunger and fear have a very troubling relationship. In her book, The Spirit and Trauma, theologian Shelley Rambo talks about fear and woundedness and how we understand them. And she writes this, We tend to think of the past as behind and the future as ahead and the present as the viewpoint from which we relate to both. But the challenge for those who've experienced darkness is that the past doesn't stay in the past. Instead, it invades the present, returning in such a way that the present becomes a reenactment about what was not fully known or grasped in the past. Essentially, she's saying all the fears and insecurities that we try to mask are with us all the time. They haunt us from our past, they hinder us from going forward in the present, and we're generally unaware of them. When we are aware of them, we're often too afraid to face them, and they inhibit our capacity to live into the future. And so we sing. Come thou long, expected Jesus. Come and set our spirits free. From our sins and fears, release us. Let us find ourselves in thee. Rambo believes that when we grasp the reality that Jesus illumines the places of our deepest pain and hunger, that God remains with us. God is right there in it with us. And we're set free from the endless pursuits of artificial security. Light floods our darkness and life flows out of us in all directions. That's what Advent's really all about. Making room for God's light and life to fill us so that fear has no room to grow. In him was life. And the life was the light of all people. I have a few personal traditions at Christmas. Usually on Christmas Eve, no matter how late, before I go to bed, I put on my PJs, a little hot chocolate, maybe throw a little Bailey's in. Come on. And I put in the DVD player, It's a Wonderful Life. And I watch it all the way through. Any other takers on that? Yes. I knew it. It's one of my favorite movies, and I bet it's... I'm not alone in that. The film starts in the present with George Bailey, a desperate man seized by by circumstances beyond his capacities. He's overwhelmed by a sense of personal failure and the belief that he's ruined his and everybody else's life. He's certain his entire life has been worth nothing, and in the dark place that he finds himself, he utters a prayer... And ultimately, he wishes he'd never been born. The movie, like John's prologue, takes us back in time to see the reality behind the reality of Bailey's present. We're taken back to all the parts of George Bailey's life where he can't see anything redemptive, but through the efforts of Bailey's unlikely angelic guide, Clarence Oddbody, Angel Second Class, he's taken to see his story brought to light. What cost him his hearing as a child served to save many lives in the present. And his willingness to be gracious to the old pharmacist, Mr. Gower, gave him a life of dignity and saved him from ruin. You know, it used to bother me that none of this awareness of grace in George's past changes his circumstances in the present. He's still out $8,000 because Mr. Potter stole it, stinker, (laughs) and Zuzu's teacher still wants to knock his, or uh, teacher's husband, I would say, still wants to knock his teeth out, but the greater grace and joy of life is brought to light, and among friends, he celebrates the gift of his life woven with theirs. The shadows of his reality are rearranged and put in the right place, no longer dominating the landscape of his reality. I love this story because the older I get, the more I understand how the darkness inside me can rob me of life even more than the darkness around me. And I think there's just a little bit of George Bailey in all of us. Earlier this week, I sat with one of my neighbors at dinner as she told her story. She grew up in a Christian home with very loving parents, and she said that she and her brothers kind of always believed they were part of a perfect family. They felt guilty about it. That is, until her parents very suddenly went through a period of separation shortly after her grandmother died. Some sort of infidelity on her dad's part was really all she could put together. She shared that for years even after her parents had reunited, she seethed with anger at her dad. How could he have done that? Why? Anger and pain took root in her life and put a wall between her and her dad. It shaded the past, it clouded the present, and it darkened the future of their relationship. It was only years later when her dad very lovingly asked her to tell him, what was that period of time like for you? That they had an honest conversation in which he told her the larger story of that period of time. He said that the whole of his adult life, he had struggled with his sexuality and that he was really a gay man who for some 20-odd years had been trying to live a heterosexual life. He said that he and her mother loved each other very much. And they loved her and her brothers. And that he daily struggled to marry his faith with his reality, living in fear that if others knew, he would be rejected by family and by friends and cast out of the church that he loved. As she told it, this was just a really hard conversation. I'm sure you can imagine. And it wasn't without tears and anger and more tears. But she said it made all the difference. It was so good to finally have an honest conversation with her dad. And she loved him all the more for that honesty. She said it it helped me rearrange much of my childhood in light of this larger piece of her family story. And that it helped her understand some of the other hurts and fears that she was facing at that period of her life. She was forced to dig deep, into which where she had stored her anger and her resentment, and she had to allow God to rearrange the hard pieces of her family's story, to expose the grace and love that ran even deeper still. Now was that painfully truthful conversation hurtful? Conversation? Was that dark? Was that exploration into shadows of hidden wounds and struggles and fears bad? Maybe Barbara Brown Taylor's onto something. It's been said that conversion is not so much the introduction of new elements into our lives as much as the rearrangement of elements already present. God's light shines in the places that we would rather not see. But as it does, the Spirit of God heals and moves and rearranges our longings so that there's, we're set free to be the people that God intends us to be known and loved. My neighbor's father feared that he would be rejected by his beloved daughter, that he would die alone. But she loved him all the more for that truth come to light. Now he has since died, and in fact, she and her brothers all moved home to be with him through his final months. And her love for her, for him rather, and grief for the pain that he bore his whole life continues to bring healing and hope as she revisits that story, perhaps even more profoundly since she and her husband are now expecting their first child. But what remained with me after dinner that night was how incredibly life-giving knowing the story behind the story was for her. I wonder, wonder, if we were more honest, more real about our own hurts and longings, about some of the dark stuff that we wrestle with, if we might not more fully know the light and the life of Jesus our Savior... George has been reminding us that in many ways, John's prologue is a sort of backstory to the stories we usually associate with Christmas. And what a good backstory does is set the present in light of a greater past, just as it did my neighbor's story. And for all of us, it affords all of us, really, to rearrange what is in light of what gets revealed. If you're an honest human, I'm guessing you have some fears and dark spaces in your world. They could probably use a little of God's life-giving light. And I bet that terrifies you. So I want to invite you to some silent reflection in this beautiful, quiet space. I invite you to bring your fears before the God who already knows and can see them and who desperately longs to help you understand their place in light of the light that we have in Jesus. You may have to rearrange a few things in order to make space for that light, but I guarantee you, God is up to something, a desire to birth something new utterly beyond your wildest imagination. Salvation, rescue, life, hope, peace. So let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Come, Lord Jesus. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206 524 7301 extension 117.